welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. If you haven't met me already, my name is Kate Agnew. I'm the Marketing and Communications Director at Dietitian Connection. Um, And today I'm joined by Jamie Rose Chambers, who is an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist based in Sydney, Australia, with a lifelong passion for food and cooking. When it came to choosing her vocational path as a chef or doctor, Jamie decided to combine the two. And now as a dietitian in private practice, Jamie treats her patients' medical conditions with nutrition and lifestyle. She treats patients um, with a range of chronic disease conditions, food allergies and intolerances, PCOS and cancers. And Jamie's also a regular contributor and commentator for online and print publications. She appears regularly on TV and is an accomplished author of three books, including the popular 16-8 Intermittent Fasting. And the second edition has just been released, and I'm looking forward to talking to her more about that today. So welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. I have to admit, you've been on my podcast wish list for quite some time um, because I'm really (laughs) intrigued by your work and your niche and and the books that you've authored. So um, thank you again. It's a really exciting opportunity to be sitting down with you. Oh, thanks, Kate. It's my pleasure. Um, so I'd love to go sort of back to the beginning. I know you had a really interesting story around the career path you chose and, and that your mother is a doctor. So I'm keen to hear about your story, um, you know, these two potential career paths um, that you were offered and why you decided to become a dietitian. Yeah, I think I probably would have been a dietitian a lot earlier, but I honestly didn't know it existed until I was in my early 20s. And yeah, as you said, my mum is a GP, so I sort of have been around, I guess, the medical world my whole life. Um, And mum had her own medical practice. And so when I was younger, I used to go and work there and work on reception and do all the filing. And um, so I feel like I was, I've been kind of around that world a lot and it's always really interested me, but I guess I could never really see myself as a doctor. Um, but then also I, as I grew up, I sort of developed this real love of food and, and love of cooking. I always wanted to be in the kitchen, watching mum, helping, um, even, you know, doing the grocery shopping. Um, and, you know, so I also thought at one point, well, maybe a chef is for me. And I remember someone said to me, you know, a chef's work, you know, basically, every Friday, Saturday night kind of thing. And I thought, oh, that doesn't really sound for me. (laughs) Mm. So I went overseas and traveled and I was trawling through um, university uh, courses and I saw this dietitian uh, degree and I thought, my God, that has to be something to do with food. And I remember going into it and just having this absolute light bulb moment and thinking, oh, my God, this is perfect for me. It combines science and medicine and food. And I applied on the spot basically. And within a couple of months, I was back in, in Sydney and, um, and I was studying and that, and the rest is history really. (laughs) I think I had the same sort of thought pattern along the lines, um, with my career. So it's really interesting to hear how that's, um, you know, been shaped by your experiences and your interests. Yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy how it happened and absolutely Mm. meant to be. Mm. Um, so we're going to be talking about intermittent fasting uh, yes. today because I know that um, you use that in practice wherever it's appropriate, but mm-hmm. maybe we should just go back and talk about a quick rundown on the different types of intermittent fasting, you know, the evidence behind it, if you could remind mm-hmm. us. Sure. So I think probably the, the most famous um, form of intermittent fasting is the 5-2. It was pioneered by Dr. Michael Mosley probably a good, at least a good 10 years ago now, um, and his very, very famous documentary. And basically what the 5-2 involves is five days of, of uh, in inverted commas, normal eating, and then two non-consecutive days of fasting. So, for example, you might fast on, say, a Monday and a Wednesday, 
And on those days, you would eat about a quarter of your daily calories. So for men, it's 600 calories. For women, it's 500 calories. Um, and obviously you'd need to be quite specific about calorie counting. Um, and most people find that they're, you know, quite uncomfortable and a little bit hungry on those days. So it can be a bit of a tough form of, of fasting. Um, the other method, which is the one that I've written my books on is the 16, eight. So I'd say they're probably the two most, um, well-researched, uh, forms of intermittent fasting. And so they're the ones I usually speak about. Um, so the 16-8 is more of a, a daily fasting regime. So the idea is that 16 hours of the day you would fast. So instead of, say, fasting for maybe 10 to 12 hours that most people do overnight, you would extend that overnight fast to 16 hours and you would uh, basically limit your eating day to about an eight-hour window. So, for example, some people might start to eat at roughly about 10 o'clock in the morning, so they might have their first meal or break their fast about 10 in the morning, and they would have their last meal of the day by about 6 p.m., and then they would fast again overnight. So it's really just about sort of cinching down your eating day um, and, and being in an overnight fast for a longer period of time. As far as the evidence goes, um, probably the main research that's been done is on, on weight management. Um, and then there's some other really fantastic research on other um, uh, health issues. And I think we'll go into more detail uh, in that mm -hmm. later on. Um, but really, I think the, the main thing is that the two types of fasting have very similar outcomes in terms of the evidence. So I think I often use them kind of interchangeably. Um, and really the method that I choose to work with with my patients or suggest is really based on their lifestyle and what they're trying to achieve and um, and how it would suit them. Mm, I was going to ask that. I was thinking just back to, um, you know, so certain people who have really busy mornings and um, maybe sometimes don't really, don't really feel like eating in the morning anyway yeah. or they just go, 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 go and maybe 16-8 would be a lot easier for them than trying to do 5-2, I imagine. Absolutely, yeah. So I find, interestingly, I've, a lot of um, people who do the 5-2 are um, medical practitioners. So a lot of colleagues that I work with and um, I, I think the nature of their work is a lot of them are, are trained to kind of not eat for long periods of time and function very well. Um, uh, you know, so some people feel quite, um, uh, fantastic when they're fasting, they kind of get a bit of a high from it. And so, um, you know, five, two might work really well for them. Some people on the other hand, um, feel very tired and lethargic and don't feel like they're very productive. And so that's obviously not very appropriate for them in terms of the 16, eight. I mean, where you have your, your eating window and where you place your fasting is really very personal. Some people have to wake up and have breakfast or they feel sick and um, unwell and a bit wobbly, but perhaps they're not terribly interested in eating later in the evening. They're not that hungry. Um, maybe they're working late um, and, and, you know, sort of eating earlier in the morning works really well for them, as you suggested as well. And I think probably the most popular um, sort of timing for the 16-8 fasting is for people to kind of just get up, get going, get out of the house, maybe have a black coffee, whole lot of water. And then when they get hungrier later in the morning or around, around lunchtime, that's when they'll break their fast. And that also means then that, you know, they can go home and eat dinner with their family. Um, they can uh, be social, go out for dinner. So that timing I, I tend to find from a social perspective works uh, a lot better for most people. But again, it's very personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like um, part of when you're talking to um, a patient or client about fasting, it's, would it be about um, them actually sort of reflecting on their own experiences, hunger cues, what makes them um, feel, you know, um, feel good during the day and then trying to choose, a, a, you know, individualizing it for what will suit them? I mean, absolutely. I think that's really what dietitians are, clinical dietitians are good at. That's what we're trained to do is to personalize and tailor a, um, a suggested sort of program for, for their patients or for our patients. So yes, absolutely. I mean, like we, we all do as clinicians, I gather heaps of information, a diet history, <clears throat> um, 
you know, routines, um, uh, you know, when, when they're most hungry, what meal of the day they most prefer, you know, what their lifestyle looks like. And then we can sort of match a, um, a, an intermittent fasting regime based on that. In saying that, however, you know, um, I've got a lot of patients as well who will wake up in the morning and slam down breakfast at six in the morning because they think they have to, and they're not really that hungry. Um, but really, you know, I, I mean, I get a lot of patients that sort of say, but if I don't have breakfast, isn't it the most important meal of the day? And um, uh, look, it, it can be, and again, it's very personal. And uh, But on the, the flip side, I guess, when someone pushes their breakfast out, who would normally eat breakfast very early, but pushes it out um, and has it, say, later on in the morning, 9, 10, 11, something like that, um, they often adapt to it quite quickly. Um, and I've got a lot of patients who've sort of come back to me and said, you know, I ended up having breakfast later, uh, later in the morning, and um, I was a little bit uncomfortable for maybe the first few days, but I find now that I'm not hungry at all until later in the morning. It's incredible how our body really adapts mm. to that. Again, it doesn't happen for everyone, but I do find that the vast majority of people, they, they do adapt to it very well if they want to. So mm -hmm. really, again, it's very personal. Mm, and it's not skipping breakfast altogether. It's delaying it for that window. Um, am I understanding Absolutely. correctly? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, in saying that, the the fasting regime where you perhaps might have breakfast mid to late morning and then you might have a sort of lunch meal around one or two and then dinner by six, there's still your three meals of the day. <clears throat> Some people prefer to hold off until lunchtime and they might sort of have, say, a lunch meal, maybe one or two snacks through the afternoon and then a later dinner meal. So, again, as long as you're meeting nutritional requirements, it really doesn't matter how you break down that eating window, I think. Mm. And so um, in what situations would you discuss intermittent fasting as a tool for your patients and clients in practice? I think for generally healthy people, I think for people who um, have a long history of dieting, um, who have a fairly good relationship with food, um, I think for people who... Um, maybe just have a bit of stubborn weight loss um, and they perhaps uh, just have a few kilos they want to lose and they're finding that very difficult for whatever reason that might be. Um, or even for someone who has quite a long weight loss journey ahead of them and um, just wants something that just doesn't make them feel hungry all the time, I suppose, like a traditional um, calorie control diet. Um, because I do find that, um, you know, that, that can, that the dropout rate tends to be much higher for a low calorie diet, just in general, um, a, you know, a traditional weight loss diet. Um, and I do find that, um, plateaus occur a little bit more regularly. Um, so navigating around those with a low calorie diet. So I, I find that the intermittent fasting, it, it can just be a different way of doing things that might help with longevity in terms of um, someone who needs to lose a lot more weight um, over a longer period of time, um, but also, of course, the big one, which is keeping that weight off long-term as well. Mm -hmm. So I like to use 16-8. Um, I call it sort of sliding up and down the scale in the book. So I think it's really important to be able to be flexible with the 16-8. So uh, for example, sliding up the scale might be for someone who wants to just kind of click into gear for a period of time while they lose a few kilos or they perhaps return from holidays. And, the, you know, I mean, I've had so many patients recently who have sort of said, you know, it's been Christmas and we've been on holidays and everything feels a little bit out of control. I want to get into some sort of a good, healthy regime again. So we might, what I call, kind of slide up the scale in terms of being a little bit more. Um, uh, focused and controlled with timing of eating. Um, obviously, you know, making sure that um, uh, meals and snacks are really nourishing. Um, obviously, getting some regular physical activity in there. Um, whereas for someone who, you know, maybe there's a big work deadline coming up or um, someone, you know, some women really struggle in the lead up to their period and they find it really difficult to fast, I call, you know, I sort of suggest 
sliding down the scale. So what that might mean is instead of fasting for 16 hours and eating within eight hours, it might be eating within a 10 to 12 hour window of the day. That's still beneficial. That's still, we know, even fasting overnight for 12 hours can be beneficial to our health. So there's still some fasting going on, but it's not kind of strict, I suppose. Um, And you know, I find that, you know, being able to slide up and down the scale and be flexible with um, how you eat and the hours in which you eat um, can really help just to maintain this type of intermittent fasting regime long term. And that's probably one of the biggest things in the book that I go into detail with is about it being a lifestyle plan, a long term plan um, to be able to maintain the, the health benefits of fasting and, and perhaps the weight management benefits of fasting as well long-term, um, it's all about flexibility. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I was just to that point, you know, when we were having a conversation a few weeks ago, you mentioned it's a, it's a health and lifestyle tool, not a rigid diet with restrictions. Um, so that's quite interesting. Do you think that's what makes it more sustainable for a lot of people? Yeah, but I also think that, you know, calling it a health tool, using it as a health tool is also, um, I guess, a mindset, right? So mm-hmm. I think with any type of, um, you know, manipulation to your diet and eating regime, <clears throat> I think it can be abused and used in the wrong way. So there are definitely people I think that it's not suitable for. But I think in you, when used in the right way, I definitely think it can be a really valuable health tool because allowing for flexibility we're not we're not restricting food we're not restricting food groups um it's purely about eating times um there's no counting calories which is i think one of the downsides to the five two i've had many patients that have come through and they kind of say i just eat less i don't count my calories um and i think you know that's where it can be a bit tricky and the five two can be a little bit difficult for some people. Whereas the 16, eight, I just love it because, you know, you don't have to count your calories. You don't have to cut out or restrict anything. Um, and I, as I said, if used in the right way, if you go about it in, you know, the right sort of headspace, uh, I think it can be, it can be such a valuable tool, um, for long-term health and for long-term weight management. Do you think that's why it's really important for, um, individuals to work with a dietitian if they're trying to do intermittent fasting in order to have that support and to check that they're meeting their nutritional requirements rather than just counting calories as their kind of metric? Yeah, look, I mean, um, as as a clinical dietitian, I'd say anyone who wanted to manipulate their diet in any way should probably just pass through a dietitian and get some advice, even if it's just one session. Um, but I do think if anyone has a little bit more of a complicated medical history, um, if they've sort of tried something and it hasn't worked for them, I would encourage them to see a dietitian and just go through in a bit more detail. You know, they might get some other ideas on, you know, different timings or um, uh, where placement of, of food and meals that might just make their um, fasting regime, just that little bit easier and therefore something that they can do long-term. So yeah, look, I'm all for going to see a dietitian about it. Absolutely. When is intermittent fasting totally inappropriate? Yeah. So I touched on a group, um, that it would be inappropriate for that. I personally don't feel comfortable, um, suggesting intermittent fasting. And that would be, um, anyone who's sort of been a chronic dieter, because I do find that without them even trying, that often it turns into some sort of a diet despite your best efforts. So, for example, there might be the tendency to start counting calories while they're fasting or just being too rigid and restrictive, um, perhaps cutting out carbohydrates. Some of those old diet habits tend to creep in and so I, I often will, you know, direct them more towards trying to just get back to eating in a normal fashion, um, you know, three meals a day kind of thing or whatever suits them. Um, Obviously then, you know, anyone with a history of eating disorder or disordered eating, I would absolutely suggest um, not to be doing anything restrictive um, like 
intermittent fasting can be in terms of food timing. Um, anyone with a um, just a complex medical history, anyone on uh, um, medications that, for example, might affect their blood sugar levels, so anyone with you know um, uh, type two diabetes, type one diabetes, it it's not that it's not appropriate for them. It's just that it, um, it, it needs they need support from their specialist as well, and the okay from their specialist. Um, to make sure, I mean, in many cases, it might actually be quite good for some people, um, uh, but it absolutely um, needs to be okayed by specialists. Um, so they're probably the main ones. Um, obviously, um, anyone that's um, under the age of, say, 18, so anyone who's still growing and developing, naturally anyone who is pregnant or breastfeeding, um, there's, they've got very high nutrient requirements. So intermittent fasting is just not appropriate. I get so many questions through, um, Instagram and social media from women who are still breastfeeding and they're desperate to lose their, their baby weight. And they sort of say, you know, I'm six months in and I'm still breastfeeding. Can I start intermittent fasting yet? And my general, kind of blanket answer is just don't risk it. Don't risk it for your baby's sake or your sake. Just wait until you finish breastfeeding and then you can kind of do what you like, you know. Um, so they're definitely a group that I would um, suggest not to uh, do any type of intermittent fasting. And then, look, I think any little oldies as well. So I think probably anyone over about the age of 70, 75, not that they're really old, but, um, <laughs> but um, I think it's, there's some research to show that it may not be beneficial for them um, as mm -hmm. well. Um, so they're the main ones, yeah. Mm. Um, I imagine most people associate intermittent fasting with, with weight loss and we've talked about that a bit. Um, but I know that there are a whole lot of other benefits with kind of emerging research around it and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really keen to hear about that from you. So can you tell us more? Sure. So, I mean, I think it's important to say that because intermittent fasting is still a very um, new concept, the research is still very new as well. So there are some good quality studies um, on varying health conditions and obviously weight management. Um, a lot of them are animal-based studies. So we can obviously extrapolate information from that and how it might be appropriate for humans, but there are still, you know, it's still in, in its infancy, I suppose. The other thing to mention too is that any good quality studies, obviously they're only over a short span of time. So long-term, we don't have any of that data yet. So I just wanted to kind of premise. Um, Which is an know, inher inherent issue in nutrition research. When we're well, right. About long exactly. Term. Yeah. <laughs> totally. That's exactly right. Um, so I think the main I mean, I, I think the main research that's coming through that I find really interesting is that intermittent fasting may be helpful for pretty much controlling almost every risk factor for, for chronic disease, which I just think is fascinating. So, for example, um, heart disease. So there's some research that suggests that um, intermittent fasting might be good for reducing systolic blood pressure um, as well as reducing LDL or, or bad cholesterol. Um, in terms of diabetes, so of course, type two diabetes, some research to show that it might help lower fasting blood sugar levels, um, particularly for the groups of people that eat, uh, have their eating window earlier on in the day. Um, so for example, um, you know, those who eat between say eight and four, 8am and 4pm, the group that ate later on in the day had no change, um, to, um, their fasting blood sugar levels. So I do find that's incredibly interesting. Um, uh, also improved insulin sensitivity as well, and that's also um, a timing thing as well. So anyone, when I'm suggesting intermittent fasting for anyone with, say, pre-diabetes or insulin resistance, I usually always suggest them having their eating window earlier on in the day and making mm -hmm. sure that they're not eating too late in the evening. Um, in terms of cancer, um, look, this is... Still, um, there's just a spattering of a few interesting um, uh, studies, um, mostly with women with breast cancer and men with prostate cancer. Um, some generally they're positive, but again, they're not good quality studies, but um, generally looking pretty good. Um, so obviously more research needs to be done in that area. Um, 
what kind of got me interested in originally in intermittent fasting was that my dad started doing it about 10 years ago. And this is in the introduction to my book. Um, but his father, um, got early onset Alzheimer's and, um, and was kind of a vegetable for, you know, a good 10, 20 years. Um, and it was pretty horrible. Um, my dad subsequently is, you know, uh, pretty concerned about that being a problem for him as well. So he started doing intermittent fasting. He does the five, two though, because that works well for him and has been doing it for probably a good 10 years now. Um, and his whole reason for doing it was to try and reduce his risk of Alzheimer's and, and the onset of Alzheimer's. So, um, there is some good research on, on this. Um, so in terms of reducing the risk of neurodegenerative diseases, so Parkinson's and Alzheimer's in particular, um, the idea behind it is that it potentially might make the brain more resilient and resistant to disease. Um, uh, there's also some research to show that intermittent fasting might be good for improved, um, cognitive performance, particularly memory. Um, and interestingly, um, may help some people with the symptoms of depression and anxiety as well, which I think is really interesting. Um, uh, so that's, that's sort of the, 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 um, the brain and, and, and mood, um, Inflammation, another really interesting one. Um, some research to show that, um, particularly through Ramadan, they've done a lot of intermittent fasting studies with, um, uh, obviously through Ramadan, um, there's, they fast throughout the day and then eat um, in, in the evening. Um, and so um, quite a lot of studies on intermittent fasting are done through Ramadan, which is really interesting. So um, uh, there was one study that showed that um, uh, inflammatory cells, um, there was a suppression of inflammatory cells um, during fasting, which I think is, is pretty cool. Um, in terms of anti-aging, there's a word that gets thrown around a lot and it's <laughs> pronounced differently when you hear it, but autophagy, um, which is basically the process where um, cell breakdown and cell byproducts kind of get mopped up and, and um, taken out of the body. Um, and this process has been shown to kind of be accelerated, um, through, uh, and, and during intermittent fasting. Um, so it may have sort of an anti-aging kind of, um, reduced disease, um, uh, sort of component to it. Um, then, you know, there's some other really interesting things in terms of, um, intermittent fasting has been shown to improve sleep in some people. Um, reduce stress in some people. I think we're going to go into a bit more detail in gut and digestion as well. Um, PCOS, um, when there's a weight component, there might be some, uh, and also, you know, there's often a uh, insulin resistance that goes along with PCOS. So there might be some um, positive benefit of fasting um, with PCOS. Um, another study that was done on women with menopause as well um, showed that women who were postmenopausal lost double the amount of weight as those um, who were premenopausal. So again, um, they're a group of of my patients who I, I will often suggest to try some intermittent fasting, particularly those who sort of say to me, you know, I've been able to maintain my weight and, uh, you know, my whole life I've never really had a problem and then all of a sudden I hit menopause and gain five kilos and I'm not doing anything differently. So I often will suggest a bit of intermittent fasting um, and, and that often really um, helps just with that little bit of postmenopausal weight gain. So, yeah, huge scope, I think, for the benefit of intermittent fasting with many different health conditions. So I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how the research base builds over time as well. Absolutely. I imagine there's extreme interest in this area and, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting space to watch. I know, right? It's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, I can understand why you're fascinated with it and why you wrote a whole book on it. <laughs> Two, actually. <laughs> Two, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think a question that comes up a lot um, with dietitians is uh, the effect of um, energy restriction on RMR, resting metabolic rate. So yeah. what are your, from your practice, from what you've seen and then also, you know, what you've read about the research, does it affect RMR um, and how does this compare to continue, continuous energy restriction, like chronic dieting? Yeah, as, as far as I know, there's no good research on this yet, but, um, 
I think we can kind of deduce from what we know that um, there is some studies to show that with intermittent fasting, um, when you lose weight, there that the muscle mass, lean muscle mass is retained. Um, and that obviously by retaining lean muscle mass, we can also keep our RMR high, I suppose. We don't get a drop in that RMR that happens very commonly with the continuous um, calorie restriction. So again, I think that for anyone who, you know, is not necessarily trying to build lean muscle mass and they're going hard at the gym or anything, they just want to lose, they just want to lose fat, um, that, that intermittent fasting can be, um, I suppose, a slightly more superior weight loss method than continuous energy restriction. Hmm. Probably another question, and I'm sure this comes up a lot in your practice, Jamie, around exercise, fasting and exercise. And, mm. um, you know, what do your patients or clients do? And, and particularly those trying to build muscle as well, can they still follow an intermittent fasting regime? Yeah. So there's probably two sides to the exercise um, discussion. One is about performance and changing of um, body composition and the other is um, timing. So I think that, um, well, what we know is that anyone who wants to build lean muscle tissue, that intermittent fasting won't help with that. It, it will help to retain the muscle that you've got, but doing intermittent fasting won't necessarily help you to build lean muscle. Obviously, you know, I think you can probably um, play around with timings and um, macronutrients and that type of thing um, to get specific results. But I think for, you know, um, Joe, Joe Blog who wants to go and, you know, sort of um, head to the gym, um, you know, lose fat, gain muscle, <clears throat> I think is probably not the best um, strategy to use. I think probably particularly for men as well. Um, but I think that with a personalized program that you could probably, you could get around that. Um, in terms of timing, that's probably the most common question that I get is, can you um, still fast when, can you exercise when you're fasting? The answer is it's completely personal. So some people find that when they wake up in the morning and they go and exercise and they then continue to fast for a few hours after that, um, that they feel fantastic, that they've got, um, uh, you know, great stamina, um, that they're kind of buzzing. Some people feel uh, the absolute opposite. They feel like they're, they're um, uh, you know, exhausted and tired, that they don't have as much stamina, um, that they sort of flag earlier and that they're then if they try to fast for a period of time after that, they are just beside themselves hungry, hangry. <laughs> um, so, again, I think it's just incredibly personal. So, you know, really exercise needs to be... I think it's also dependent on um, intensity as well, of course. So if you go and do a big sort of boot campy type high intensity training session, obviously, um, you know, it's important to then try and replenish your energy stores pretty quickly afterwards, or that might become a little bit of a problem in terms of managing your appetite later on. Um, however, if it's maybe a, a walk or a yoga, or a yoga session, a Pilates, something like that, that's maybe not so intense. I do find a lot of my patients are fine to kind of fast for a little bit longer afterwards don't find that it particularly um, affects their stamina so much. So again, I think it's based on um, the intensity of the workout and it's also quite personal. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, some people don't fast every day as well. So, you know, I often will suggest, well, why don't you do your higher intensity training session on, on the days that you don't fast and keep it lighter on the days that you do fast and maybe do a walk or something else. Mm -hmm. So we can, again, it's about tailoring it to what suits you. <clears throat> yeah, and um, so you alluded to this earlier, the, the gut health component, and I know that you've co-authored um, the book The Mystery Gut, so we have to yeah. chat about it a little bit. Um, <laughs> Interesting yeah. that I wrote that book before I was sort of um, a lot more interested in intermittent fasting or knew so much about intermittent fasting, so <laughs> sadly it didn't creep into that book, but anyway. <laughs> Is there knowledge that you know now that you maybe hadn't come across when you wrote The Mystery Gut? Well, yeah, in saying that, probably not so much. I think the gut is another one where intermittent fasting in the gut is still, again, there's just a kind of spattering of some suggestions of how the gut, how intermittent fasting might affect the gut. 
Um, probably um, the main one is that during intermittent fasting that there are some strains of bacteria that might thrive in that, in that state. Um, the, there was another study that found that um, while fasting that some of the anti-inflammatory microbes in the bowel, um, that, that they increased, um, that there was a slight increase in the production of short-chain fatty acids and that this might be helpful with the management of colitis. So that's quite specific, probably the only one that I could really um, sort of t talk about of, of any, I guess, of any use. Um, I think probably more so um, digestion and gut function, again, is probably the main thing, purely just anecdotally that I've um, observed with people who do intermittent fasting and how it affects their gut. So um, I think two things tend to happen with intermittent fasting and bowel function. One is that um, people will come back and report to me that it improves greatly. So they might all of a sudden find that their bowel, uh, their bowel habits are regulated, that they feel like they're emptying more efficiently, um, that they're less bloated, that they've got less indigestion and heartburn, for example. Um, they feel kind of lighter in the bowel. Um, so that is obviously a, a really great bonus. Um, on the flip side, there are some people who also come back to me and sort of say, look, my, I was really regular at one point and now I'm not. Um, and I think in many cases that can be because, you know, when we eat first thing in the morning, maybe have a coffee, um, that's a trigger for opening our bowels for many people. Um, if all of a sudden they're not eating or having say that early morning coffee, um, and they're eating later in the morning, that that tends to throw off that bowel motion a little bit. People feel a little bit uncomfortable that they're stuck out, you know, maybe at work or out on the road or something and all of a sudden need to open their bowels rather than when they'd be at home in the morning. Um, the other is that one thing I find, and this is about being, you know, really um, mindful about meeting nutritional requirements when someone goes on to an intermittent fasting regime is, Let's say, for example, you would normally have um, for breakfast, say, some whole grain toast and avocado or maybe some muesli or porridge and some fruit or something. That's a really decent, you know, a meal with a decent amount of fiber in it. And now if all of a sudden you're skipping that meal and going to later in the morning um, or lunchtime when you have your first meal of the day, um, that's kind of a big chunk, chunk of your daily fiber intake that you might not be making up for later on in the day. So I do find that some people um, tend to get a little bit constipated as the days go on and the time goes on if they're not on top of um, finding other ways of getting that fibre into their diet. Um, so I think that's just another consideration as well um, in, in practice for dietitians when um, suggesting an intermittent fasting regime. Mm. And I guess that comes into the conversation of are they meeting their nutritional requirements well, and exactly. what they need yeah. for a, a still a healthy, healthy eating pattern. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations on your latest book, the updated edition of this. It's called the 16-8 Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle Plan. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Yep. That's right. Which is now on the shelves. Um, it will be, yes. So okay. um, it was delayed by a week. They were floating around on a, on a boat <laughs> for a while and with COVID it was difficult to get the, get them to shore. But, yes, they're, they're, they're on their way. hope they're okay when they arrive. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> that is really exciting. Um, what you. was the inspiration for writing this edition and the previous one as well? The previous one was just I, I just was um, I just thought it was such a a, a valuable health tool that had some really good evidence base behind it that um, I pitched the idea to my publishers and they loved it. And, and as fate would have it, they had, my publisher and her husband had just started doing the 16, eight intermittent fasting and loved it. So she was like, absolutely, let's do this. And so that, that's how the first book came about. It subsequently, um, you know, was incredibly popular because the, the whole, um, uh, the whole method of that type of fasting was just, you know, had just sort of really taken off, I suppose. Plus we had the benefit of, of some really good research coming through about it as well. Um, can't hurt when a whole lot of celebrities start doing it as well, I guess, you know, it does make it more interesting for people, <laughs> um, as sad as that might be. Um, so I think, you know, 
in the in the time between the first book and writing the second book occurred, there was some more really good research that came about. Um, and one thing that I observed was that for many people, you know, they try the intermittent fasting, uh, the 16, 8 intermittent fasting, and then they kind of go, you know what, it's not working or it's not for me, and they throw in the towel. And I would think, why is that happening for people? What can we do to make this not a diet, something they do short-term and then throw in the towel? How can we make it work for people long-term? And that's where this whole concept of the lifestyle plan came in, was just, you know, showing people how they could um, be, use it but be flexible. So, you know, always be doing some form of intermittent fasting and get the health benefits from it but not be so rigid with it that it would really impact their life, that they could be flexible with their timings, that they could be flexible and just not fast on a particular day if they didn't feel like it or they were really hungry or they had something on socially and that it didn't matter, just start it again the next day, you know, that it, to make it an integral part of their everyday health practice, like they would brush their teeth, like they would go out and do a walk or do their exercise like they would eat their five serves of veggies a day or whatever it is to be part of their everyday lifestyle plan so they could get the benefits and reap the long-term benefits of intermittent fasting, whether it be for weight management, whether it be for reducing the risk of neurodegenerative diseases or reducing the risk of type 2 diabetes if it was, say, something that ran in the family or something like that. So that's why I really, really wanted to kind of elaborate on the first book um, and make this more about how can you do this and make it part of your life long term. Mm. Do you think that some people quite like doing intermittent fasting kind of on and off as it suits them, suits what's going on in their life and, and you know, um, everything else that's happening? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I like to think of it a bit like, you know, for example, um, any any type of sort of routine that someone follows, um, you know, with their health about, you know, um, preparing their food or um, eating three healthy meals a day or getting out for their morning walk or whatever that might be, um, you know, I, f- I find that sometimes life just gets in the way. Um, we get busy or maybe we get sick or, um, you know, we're bed bound for a week or two or maybe we go on holidays or, um, the kids get sick or whatever that might be, you know, and um, our normal routine sort of falls by the wayside. Um, we just do what we can do to get through the day kind of thing. Um, so I find that, you know, um, if you're able to sort of click back into that good routine again with intermittent fasting being part of that, um, I do find that, you know, it's something that you can click in and out of or as I mentioned before, and I prefer to sort of think about it as sliding up and down the scale. So, you know, being more intense with it when you want to, sliding down the scale and just sort of being a little bit more flexible with it when you when you want to as well. But yeah, look, I really do find that if, if you can sort of approach it in that way, I do find that it's something that you're able to be, you're able to use long-term. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, so Jamie, who do you think would get the most out of reading this book? I think that anyone who's interested in intermittent fasting and looking for a long-term health strategy, basically. So I do get a lot of patients who come in and they're sort of like, you know what, I've, I've tried diets. Um, I've tried doing this by myself and I don't want to just do something short term, follow some, you know, sort of silly fad diet. Um, and, you know, just to kind of, and kind of be miserable for that time period as well, but then also not know how to kind of maintain that long-term as well. Um, you know, they might have families that they're looking after. They might, um, not have a huge amount of time on their hands. And so sort of preparing all their food and, you know, sort of being too finicky with, um, meal preparation and weighing and measuring and all that type of thing with foods or counting calories is just not something that they want to do. Um, I find that, you know, those people um, would really benefit from the book. Um, I also think that anyone who really is interested in using intermittent fasting for specific health concerns might really get a lot out of the book too. So um, I go into much more detail with um, intermittent, the, the use of intermittent fasting and in specific health concerns. Um, 
And, uh, you know, even if there's no research available, um, you know, what, what we can kind of deduce from what we know about biology, physiology, how intermittent fasting works in the body and disease state, I suppose. So um, there's some really interesting stuff in there as well. So I think that anyone like, for example, my dad who wanted to use it to reduce the risk of, of, of uh, Alzheimer's, you know, if anyone who's, who's got any of those types of concerns I think would be would really benefit from the book too. The other thing too is, you know, um, I, I love cooking, but I've got two little boys. It's busy. Um, I want to eat yum things and, you know, not spend too much. I can't spend too much time. I would, I'd love to spend more time in the kitchen, but I, often I can't. Um, and, you know, we're all on often budget concerned as well. You know, everyone sort of, a lot of people have been hit hard through COVID. So I want to make food that's really yummy that will feed my whole family. Um, and so in the book, I've got 60, uh, I think there's even more than 60 recipes in there, but they're just based on, you know, um, really yummy, ad- fully identifiable foods, you know, that we're all, um, that we, we can get from our local supermarket. Um, that's really quick and easy to make, that it's really nourishing, yummy, satisfying, um, and so I think, you know, even uh, even that in itself um, for some really good recipes too, the book's great for that too. Yeah, and I understand you have quite a comprehensive reference list with all the studies that you have sort of um, read and that have formed the culmination of this book as well. well uh, look, absolutely. I mean, when we're talking about a, um, you know, when we're talking about a topic that's still quite new, I suppose, and as I mentioned before, the research is still quite new, um, you know, it, it still can be quite controversial, I suppose. Um, and I think it's really important to be very clear about how intermittent fasting can be used, what we know, um, uh, you know, what's safe and what's not. And so, you know, for anyone who wants to read further on the research, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a, a, a huge reference list at the end of the book, um, which I'll try and make available as well for um, all your listeners um, if they want to read further into all the into all the research on intermittent fasting. Thank you, Jamie. I think dietitians would really appreciate that. I'm sure, sure they would. <laughs> <laughs> um, very cool. So we do have to wrap up and I'm sad that we have to wrap up because I do still have so many questions. Um, but just in terms of keeping to time, um, what's one thing that you would like dietitians to really remember or take away from this conversation about intermittent fasting? Yeah, look, I think that I think the main thing is really about, you know, if, if you're a little bit um, worried about using intermittent fasting with your patients, just to do a little bit of reading and a little bit of extra research and, and really consider it as, a, as one of the clinical tools you can use in your toolbox, that it isn't for everyone, of course, but there are some patients that will really benefit from it, um, that you might just get some really great results from who perhaps you know, um, uh, calorie restrict, a calorie restricted diet may not work for, um, you know, dietitians are, are really good at, and what we're, you know, clinical dietitians are trained to do is to make, um, meal plans, uh, or programs tailored and personalized. So by using intermittent fasting as, as, you know, part of that, um, program could be incredibly useful, um, I think a big one is about being open to trial and error as well. So I usually say to my patients, you know, look, let's start with this and report back to me. Let me know what you find. Let me know what you experience and we'll adjust it if we need to. And that that over time, that the, the, the timing of eating, that what they eat, where they exercise, what they exercise, what type of exercise they do might change and to be able to be flexible with that. Um, and obviously, you know, um, I think really the key is about the flexibility and really um, encouraging flexibility within the program. Um, and also just to, you know, be really mindful about meeting nutritional quality within that eating window as well. Um, a lot of people will kind of go, yeah, I can eat whatever I want. Well, as dietitians, you know, <laughs> um, I think it's, you know, we're all pretty um, clear about the fact that that that's not the best way to approach um, an eating an eating regime. Although the timing is really important, obviously nutritional quality and meeting nutritional requirements is incredibly important too. But what I love about this is that you know um, we can normalize eating, so you know, we can have the sandwich with the ham and the and the and the salad for lunch, 
not try and be cutting out carbohydrates because we think that that's what's going to help lose weight um, or, you know, that we, we need you, the, the bread's the devil kind of thing. And that's what I really like about this, it, you know, with this intermittent fasting is that we can just eat normally. Um, uh, and, and that I think is really freeing for a lot of people who have, um, you know, been dieting for a long time or, um, who feel like they just can't, um, you know, that, that they, if that they can't manage their weight, if they're not sort of manipulating their diet in some way. So yes, that's my long winded, winded answer to that question. <laughs> and how can dietitians connect with you? So I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. So Jamie Rose nutrition is my Facebook. Um, Jamie Rose underscore underscore nutrition is my Instagram, um, my website, Jamie Rose nutrition. So, um, yeah, you can contact me many ways. <laughs> Put that in the show notes. And then of Thank course, you. by the time this podcast airs, your book should be on the shelf already. Yes, hopefully that's safely. Right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks so much, Jamie. I've really enjoyed this conversation and all of the knowledge um, and practice experience you've shared. I know it's a really it's a really um, popular topic with dietitians. They're very interested in diving into the space and learning about you know where the research is at and what happens in practice. So thank you so much for sharing all of this today. Oh, okay, it's such a pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. And it's just so great that we've got such a incredibly. Um, you know, such an incredible platform for knowledge to further dietitians' education, and it's just awesome what you're doing. So, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jamie. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com/podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.